This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. Well, morning, Sam. It's finally here. It's final time. We're going to sit down with that hippie-hating mad dog himself, Christian F. Bigfoot Bjornsson, and have ourselves moto penikeku. And sure, it's something to laugh at. Bigfoot chowing down on pancakes with the same ravenous intensity that he deep throats a chocolate-covered frozen banana or a platter full of Doc's Best Asian Indica. But at the same time, this is morning, all right, and it is deep. Bigfoot's air of possessed melancholy. Where does it come from? What's been lost? If the term inherent vice refers to all that is lost irrevocably due to the nature of time, what's the shape of the hole in Bigfoot's heart? Or maybe it's his stomach. The whole time, Doc is followed and vexed by a right-wing, hippie-hating cop named Christian Bigfoot Bjornsson, played by Josh Brolin, whose beef-slab physique and woodblock head suggest that Nick Nolte and Kurt Russell somehow managed to have a son together. Like some other characters in Vice, Bigfoot is an emblem of received establishment values and handed-down wisdom about the proper way for Americans to behave. But like Oliver Stone, adapting the life of Richard Nixon and somehow ending up feeling for the guy, Anderson, who's never given any public indication of sharing Bigfoot's values, seems to treasure him as a human being, a lost soul. Dig. There are moments wherein Bigfoot, who at every turn trashes Doc's body, property, feelings, and values, seems to be in the grip of forces beyond his or anyone else's understanding. Something in the way Phoenix regards Brolin during these scenes suggests an addled yet fathomless empathy. They get each other. In its way, the relationship between the stoner detective who pretends to be a master crime fighter and the meathead cop who sometimes moonlights as an extra on Dragnet is the film's real great love story an accidental metaphor for the liberal versus conservative, dungarees versus suits, blue state versus red state divide that's defined U.S. politics since the Civil War. If you don't believe me, keep an eye out for the wordless scene where Doc watches Bigfoot absentmindedly fillet a frozen chocolate banana. Beyond the goofy humor and loopy digressions is a tremendous feeling of yearning, of sadness over undefinable loss. The foggy sunlight that illuminates so many vice scenes matches the fogginess of the hero's perceptions, which are rooted as much in nostalgia as in drugs, nostalgia itself being a kind of drug. Nearly every major character is haunted by roads not taken or less traveled, by loves not pursued, days not seized. They wonder where the time went. They wonder what they're doing here. They just walk and talk, eat and screw and smoke, and the sun goes down and the tide goes out. What is there to life? Beauty. So much beauty. That lovely and lyrical passage comes from today's guest and his review of Inherent Vice published at the time of the film's release. 
I honestly probably should just read the whole damn thing, considering how funny and science. We'd be here all day if you did. Lyrical. I don't write short when I like a movie. (laughs) Lyrical and moving it is, just like the film. And that is why, that is why, that's why, talking to him today, as he's a critic and author whose writing rivals the power of the work he's writing about. He's the, you know, you know, people say like, oh, so-and-so like literally wrote the book on this subject. They're such an expert. He is the man who's literally written the book on Mad Men and Wes Anderson and Oliver Stone and Deadwood. And with Alan Sepinwall has co-authored the book on The Sopranos, titled The Sopranos Sessions. It's so good. It's so good. And on television itself with the aptly titled TV, The Book. So here he is, the man, the myth, the legend. The author, the greatest one heat minute guest this side of Michael Mann, Mr. Matt Zoller Seitz. Thanks for coming on. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I need a cigarette and a towel after that. <laughs> well, this took a very big foot direction really quick there. Wow. Mind if I crack open a beer? <laughs> Go right ahead. You've discerned. You deserved it. <laughs> bask in the endorphin rush that i just gave you. Right. please please i'll have a banana you have a beer <laughs> i may have a banana but the night the night is young <laughs> <laughs> oh god See how it oh. Goes. usually takes me three drinks before i bust out the chocolate banana <laughs> <laughs> wow we are what like five minutes in and this episode is taking a turn i'm feeling loopy what can i do <laughs> okay so here we are we're here to talk about inherent vice you are someone who, as I have said in my wildly hyperbolic but quite accurate introduction, you are someone who I feel like you see a movie once and I feel like you already begin to concretize your feelings on it. You know why you like it. You know why it's touching you. You know why it's singing your song, if it does. And Inherent Vice is a film, though, that I think can be very elusive and really tricky for a lot of people the first time out. But based on this review, which is set in stone in my head, you were one of those people who you walked out of the theater or the screening room the first time and you knew you were in love. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. That happens to me. It happens to me a lot. Um, I think that if I had a theme song, it would be, uh, I fall in love too easily. (laughs) (laughs) but I don't think I do I think when I fall in love with the movie it's because the movie is speaking to me in some really basic way and I don't um I don't worry it too much if I love a movie I don't think like well what if the movie's fooling me or like what if my initial reaction was uh you know excessive or something and you know there are times when I I look back at a review and say uh oh, I I overrated that slightly, or oh, I underrated that slightly. Um, But I think that happens less often as I've gotten older, because I know myself better, and I know when a movie is speaking my language, and this movie spoke my language. I mean, and I'm not a Paul Thomas Anderson, you know, everything he does is gold kind of person. I know a lot of people are, and I don't begrudge those people, you know. Like, I'm kind of in the tank for people like Terrence Malick, Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of people who love Terrence Malick don't love everything he's done, and it's fine. But I will say, You're talking that, to you know, a man with a Badlands tattoo. Right here. Oh my God, that's great! Entire arm. That's great. Well, I've got a. Uh, 
Watership Down tattoo on my arm. Oh, God. And of course, you want up me. Look at that. Look yeah. at that. On my own yeah. show, no less. The Black Ray, it's the Black Rabbit of Inley, the Grim Reaper of the Rabbits. So, uh, yeah, but um, yeah, this movie, it just, it just spoke to me. And I think it maybe it was, maybe it was the time of, of life when I saw it, but I don't know. It's, what is it, seven years later now? And I just watched it again before this podcast. And I, uh, I think I love it even more now. And I think it's just that there seems to be something so um, accepting, like weirdly accepting about the movie. Like the movie, it, it, it finds characters funny. It lets us laugh at characters because they're just so ridiculous. Like every single one of them is ridiculous. Like they look like cartoons that were drawn with a pen. Like 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 the details of costume design and and hairstyle and 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 the way that the actors play them and like everybody gives a character their own walk and their own like voice you know like there, there's a very very high level of craft going on here and the way they the way they create these characters but so you can laugh at them and you know i think it, it would be a little weird if you didn't because they're just so absurd but i think they're absurd in the way that people are absurd yeah. and uh, and and i don't feel that it's a cynical movie um I think it really, I think it looks at all of these characters with love. And I think, I think that comes through even more strongly in the relationship between Doc and Bigfoot. Oh God, that is, yes. Let me say, <laughs> stop. That moment, yes. that moment. And I'm not giving anything away because who would listen to a podcast like this if they hadn't already <laughs> seen the movie? But, but that moment, I think it's a, a penultimate scene when, when Doc is sitting there we're gonna get to the that. joint with his shirt off get... and Bigfoot bursts down the door like like the like the incredible Hulk. <laughs> it comes into his comes into his apartment and uh, after and a long his, and busy day of civil rights violations. like clomping riot boots on the broken <laughs> glass on the floor, like every step he takes like <laughs> And he and he looks like he's had a, a horrible epiphany of some kind, and that's when he like he asked for his joint, and I thought like is this his first time smoking a joint? Like, I think, I think maybe we're supposed to think that it is. And, and he, he takes a hit off of his joint and inhales, inhales it. And then he, he eats, I guess it looks like he's eating the rest of his unrolled pot. Like oh it's, yeah. It's consuming like it. It's like, it's a, like, it's a bowl of spinach and he's Popeye <laughs> or something. It's crazy. <laughs> and, and then, but the, what gets me is they cut to, they cut to talk. And he's crying. Crying. He's, he's crying. crying. He's crying. A single tear out of one eye. <laughs> and I was so moved. I was so moved by that. I, you know, like I don't think it's possible to overdo it if in a podcast where you're examining this movie scene by scene. So I'm just going to go ahead and say, he looks at Bigfoot the way that I would imagine. I would imagine that Christ would. I'm serious. I really well, he's, think he's he, looking at him like in a in a spirit of benevolent love and forgiveness and like oh the humanity like he's really i think he's really moved by bigfoot eating I, like i think eating so like too. a fistful of pot you know I like like so like, like, he, like a fucking boa constrictor <laughs> following a mouse he just like he just like you know well, big, or, uh, and he lifts up that tray and you can't even see his face and the, <laughs> i don't and, even know if that's the scene i'm supposed to talk about it's, it's not crazy. well hey we're, we are i am gonna bring that scene up later in this episode we are gonna talk so yeah. it's fine hey, it is it's, as you said this is an inherent inherent vice podcast there's no discipline here we're not neil mcculley 
there's there's no rules here but um yeah, doc even says you know are you okay brother and bigfoot's like i'm not your brother and doc says no but you could use a keeper that you is use a keeper, as like as it gets that's when I cried a single tear is when <laughs> I'm serious. I was, I was really moved by that scene. And there's a number of scenes in the movie that, that I find very moving. And, well, and this is my, this is my favorite film of his. Apple. It's not even a contest. This is, it's this, I mean, he's made some very good movies, but this one is like off the charts for me. Well, clearly, obviously I agree. Uh, it is, it's certainly, I mean, that'd be really weird if I said, Oh no, actually Magnolia, that's the, that's my favorite. I, I, I will accept the argument that the master might be a more like on paper objectively closer to perfect movie, but this is the song. This is the, this is the film that rings my bell. It sings my song. I think that this is PTA's white album. This is the film that does everything that his other films do, but does, doesn't mix them all together quite as much, whether it's yeah. the, we had a great guest, uh, Jason Bailey, who divided uh, PTA's career into two halves. There's the first half, which is the Coke Kid, and then there's the second half, which is Weed Dad. And mm. this is the only film that gets Coke Kid and Weed Dad to sit in the same room and talk to each other. I think it's Weed Dad talking about Coke Dad. I don't think Coke Dad is there. <laughs> Coke it's Weed Dad telling you about how he used to be Coke Dad. <laughs> that is actually, with respect to Bailey, I think that is actually a better metaphor. I think this he's is, looking. This and, I think he's, and to continue, and to continue the the Jesus the Jesusy goodness here. I think <laughs> the Jesusy goodness. I think he's looking at. I think he's looking at his old self in a non-judgmental, affectionate way. I think you're right, and you know what? I'm going to use that phrase like when I when I. Uh, uh, put this uh that put this episode up and we talk about it on twitter i'm just gonna say hot jesusy goodness <laughs> jesusy goodness exactly <laughs> with, yeah yeah no, with, I mean, with mzs know, I, <laughs> I think it's you know one of the recurring conversations that i have on on twitter with other critics like i'm actually you know it's funny like i'm not a i'm not a religious person i don't go to church i don't practice any particular faith i don't even like uh you know i don't worship i don't pray or anything like that but I have a very strong religious uh, sensibility and affinity, and it comes out in the way I write sometimes. And it's usually when I when I see a movie that makes me feel the way I think I'm supposed to feel when I'm in church. I never feel in church the way I'm supposed to feel in church, unless it's someone getting married or or it's a funeral. Then I think I can feel it, and then it doesn't have anything to do with the the room itself or you know, the reading or the sermon or anything. It's just that I'm thinking about the person and, oh, I love that person. I feel moved, you know, like that's the kind of, that could happen anywhere. That could happen at, you know, uh, uh, Cracker Barrel. You know what I mean? Like, like that's, uh, you don't have to be in a church to feel that. But, but when I watch certain movies, I get that churchy feeling, you know, and, and I think uh, Terrence Malick gives that to me a lot. Mm-hmm. And, um, and this movie gave it to me. And a lot of Altman's films, like not all of them, but a movie like Nashville, I was watching Nashville the other night, and uh, I was getting that feeling. I was getting that kind of like tingle, like a nice tingle of, oh, look, look at how complicated and interesting the human race is and how deluded they are and how everybody thinks they're the star of the movie and they're all just bit players. And, you know, I don't know, just that. that and that's that's the feeling that I got from this. And I think this is actually closest um, obviously, Altman is a gigantic influence on Paul Thomas Anderson. He's he's never been shy about that from the very yeah. beginning. And in fact, the ultimate compliment that has ever been paid to Paul Thomas Anderson 
better is than he, any Oscar he could win. When Alton when, hired him? What is when Alton designated him as yep. the guy who, who is going to take over the Prairie Home Companion in the event that he dies while shooting. That That is the cinema crown right there. I mean, like That is, that is knighthood. Like, that is knighthood. I imagine probably there are people who are like, you know, you've been you've been uh, making movies for a long time, you, and you've never won an Oscar. Uh, do you feel bad about that? He's like, why the? He's probably thinking, how the fuck could I possibly feel bad about not winning anything when Robert Altman was like, hey kid, if I cack while I'm shooting this, take over, <laughs> and the movie will be fine. Are you kidding? <laughs> You're not. It's that cinema knighthood right there. What the hell? And you it's, know, you know, really, you could just be like, no wonder, no wonder his movies became so sort of at peace with themselves and unconcerned with impressing anyone. He's made it. He doesn't. He has nothing left to prove. He has nothing left to prove at that point, and it's at that point that he makes the master. Exactly. That that was kind of when the slowdown happened. The slowdown. That's after, when the hey, slowdown happened. I don't have to rub your face in it. When, that's when he became weed dad. That's ah, when weed dad kicked yeah. <laughs> This is a Doc Sportello mystery that we're solving. <laughs> when did Paul Thomas Anderson become weed dad? And the answer is. When he was knighted by the weed dad of 70s cinema, right? Oh, God. <laughs> eh? You say, now you say that, you say that, and obviously, you know, Altman, there's no, no contention that, that he looms large over the, the PTA filmography. But I think that something else that makes Inherent Vice so special is that for all the times you can, you know, you can say, oh, look at, look at the Altman influence here. Look at the Scorsese influence on the, on the Boogie Night. I, it has always felt like Jonathan Demme is, if not the guiding North Star to PTA's work, it's at least a big, big light in the, the, the constellation of his work. And Oh, yeah, he's certainly, big, he's certainly a big influence. Yeah, one Keith, of, you, my friend Keith Ulick, who I think you know, uh, Keith, Keith has talked to me many times about that, about this sort of, I guess he would call, I mean, you know, more Jesus-y goodness. <laughs> the, way that, the way that Jonathan Demme photographs people, particularly in close-ups, is the, is the way that a person who really loves people would look at them. Exactly, exactly. And he make, when they're looking at the camera, he makes them all look like they're looking at God. Like there's a, there's a, there is a washed yeah. reverence upon their face, like they are seeing something holy. Or the God a lector. Or that God is looking at them. Exactly, exactly. Oh, and oh, in oh. fact, in a way, God is looking at them. Jonathan, Jonathan Demme directed the movie. That's, that's as close to God as you're going to get. That's as close as you're going to get. But you know what? We compare, we're comparing Paul Thomas Anderson to a lot of different people. And I think earlier in his career, uh, we would be justified in stopping there because he, he, wore, you know, he wore his influences like a series of T-shirts and he was young. He was young. Mm -hmm. He was like Orson Welles level brilliant. And, and, and you could see him sort of pushing to make a masterpiece that couldn't be denied. And like, I like Paul Thomas Anderson better now that he doesn't give a shit. <laughs> now that he doesn't, I don't mean he doesn't care about his work. I mean that he doesn't, he seems to be making movies as if he doesn't care if anyone even sees them. Yeah. Like he, that, it's like you see, he might as well be sitting in a chair thinking about the movie and there's a jack in his head that's recording the images. That's how not self-conscious he is now. Yeah. And and inherent vice more so than any of his other movies is is it, it's very plainly directed. And I don't mean that it's boringly directed. I mean the choices that he's making are so simple where it's like, let's pick a shot, let's put the actors in the shot, and maybe we'll zoom in very slowly and they keep going until the scene is done and then they cut. Exactly. He never That's used it. to do he never used to do that. Well, I think there's I think there's an 
an older man, and by I mean older man, just someone who has more experience than Coke Kid, let's say, there's right. an older man's Demi-esque appreciation for Hollywood Mount Rushmore's. Just the magic of a movie star's face on the screen. Blemished, yeah. warts and all. You know, every, every character in this film has that weird first five years of SNL uh, 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 troupe where everyone looks like they're a little slicked in coke sweat. They, they look like they maybe haven't been around a shower in about 30, 35 hours. And, but he just lingers on these faces, the faces. I love that people have, uh, people have sunburns. They have, rash, they have rashes. They yeah. have acne. If they have moles or, or, or beauty spots or, uh, you know, slightly worrisome uh, areas where they think maybe the uh, uh, skin care specialist should take a look, <laughs> he leaves it. He leaves it. Movies, Hollywood, American movies don't do that. They don't no. do that. And even, even like historical movies where the whole point is, look at how hard it must have been to live back during 1757 with <laughs> Last of the Mohicans. You know, like Last of the Mohicans is incredibly realistic as far as like uh, weapons tactics and clothing and, and architecture and things. But you know what? They stopped short with the hair and the teeth. <laughs> Everybody funny. looks like they, they just got done, you know, with shampoo and conditioner provided by Breck. Oh, God. And the, Matt, teeth, that, the teeth are gleaming. They're beautiful. Pure hair porn. 1992 Hollywood teeth. Because they pure know that if people had, point. like, you know, the real Hawkeye, if there was a real Hawkeye, would have, like, nine teeth. <laughs> Probably. You know, you got to be careful. You say that movie's title a third time, and Blake Howard is going to materialize right between <laughs> us and, and just start riffing on the movie. So we got to be careful because we got to keep yeah. it vice-centric. But, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think you're right. And it's, it's, it's interesting how he kind of traded the topography uh, and the vistas of something like There Will Be Blood, which I think is very self-consciously his, look at me, I can make one like the big boys, for right. the, the topography of just Joaquin Phoenix's face or the stubble right. on Josh Brolin's chin at the end of the film when he, he seems like he is off on a bender and he's just lost all contact with, 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 with reality. There is, as I said, I think it's like an older filmmaker's appreciation and trust in, you know what? It's the actors, it's the characters. The yeah. plot and the this and the this. No, I just want to look at Shasta Faye's face and the sorrow in her eyes and the mm -hmm. regret for the choices made and not made. And let's just meditate on that for a while, which feels very Demi-esque to me. But it also is connecting to something. The reason I brought up Demi originally is I cannot think in the, the, um, in the canon of American uh, cinema, a director who is more empathetic or anyone in his film, or yeah. films rather. And I feel like there is no more empathetic film in the PTA canon than Inherent Vice, even for character. And you, you mentioned this, you mentioned this in, in your review, uh, that even for someone who is as pretty loathsome as Bigfoot Bjornsson, PTA is able to locate a humanity and empathy for this character and also and never seems to say like oh it's okay ha 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 civil rights violations who cares uh but more just like able to acknowledge this is a, someone who is hurting it doesn't make him a good person but right. i'm not going to not acknowledge that this is a human being in a deep 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 well of agony for over something and maybe doc will figure out what that was what it is what it isn't but that he's something oh sorry sorry go ahead no, no, no. hey what do you got I was just going to say, wasn't, isn't there a line like to the effect of he had issues with his mother? Doesn't well, something? 
he mentions in the scene we're going to talk about today that the uh, the pancakes are not as good as his mother's. That's, That's about the That's only like they're not as good as mother's. But you know, well, you know what I really come here for? It's the respect. It's, it's the, the respect. respect. And then Doc just you know had a little joke about your mom didn't respect it, did she, Bigfoot? You know, kind of kind of jibing him in that little brother way that they have with each with one another. But the, there's something. There is a level of empathy here. And it's not to say that his other films aren't empathetic. You look at something like Magnolia and Jesus, like everyone in that movie, with the, with the exception of the pretty odious Jimmy Gator, uh, is, <laughs> is uh, which, what a perfect name. Uh, it, he cares about them all, the bad dads, uh, the, the lost children, uh, everyone, the, the bad cops, everyone he, he finds a humanity for but in this film it just seems a little different it seems a little what, is, what does he say to him what does he say to him about his mother what does he ask him uh something like something when he, when when bigfoot says when he's like you know these these pancakes are not as good as my mother's but you know what i really come here for is the respect that they show me uh and and, and i can't remember the exact line and boy this is a failing on my part as the host but Doc says something to the effect of, your mother did, she never did respect you, did she? Basically? See, now, this is interesting. Now, this is, this is where we come into the issue of interpretation. I, for the last several months, I've been on a, a kind of a jag where I've been watching a lot of old crime films, mm -hmm. including a lot of detective movies that starred Humphrey Bogart. Mm. And think about the way Bogart would have read that line. Bogart would have read that line in a way that weaponized it. Exactly. Would have broken. Where the intent was to get under somebody's skin and provoke them into an outburst, which might give him a piece of information that he needed or give them give him an excuse to punch them in the face or something. But Doc doesn't say it that way. Joaquin Phoenix doesn't say it that way. The movie doesn't say it that way. It's it's the way that a therapist would <laughs> would say it. It's interesting that you said that. I always viewed it like I, I get exactly what you're saying. Bogart would have said it the way he digs at uh, Elisha Cook Jr. in Maltese Falcon when he's calling him the gun soul and always like insulting him and like waiting right. for him to throw a punch so he can drop right. him. But exactly. I always viewed it in the, that it's almost like a little brother, like teasing something out of you. But at the same time, as yeah. someone who has who has three little brothers, you have that attitude of like, now I can fuck with them and yeah, I can beat yeah. them up, but you cannot touch them you can't say anything but i can i can insult them all i want and there's almost a little bit of i don't think he's even doing that though i don't mm -hmm. feel that i mean we can we can watch slash listen to the scene again but i don't <laughs> even feel that i don't even feel that from it i feel yeah. like he's maybe it's 10 percent that but i feel like there's a, a lot of times it, it becomes particularly clear when he's talking to bigfoot but i think it's it's present in almost every scene there's a moment or moments where doc seems to be genuinely curious about and or concerned about the person he's talking to which yeah. is which is what makes him not an entirely comical pathetic figure there is a humanity to him like an open armed like more than anyone else in the film doc kind of accepts everyone on their terms Mm -hmm. and, it, and not just out of like a hippy dippy laziness of like hey man whatever whatever there's there's a there seems to be like a genuine care and concern for people on his part and that's, a, that's another reason why i love him so much is as addled as he may be as confused and not always the best detective in the world that he may be there is a willingness and it's like you never actually see him take any money from any of these people that are asked like whether it's Tariq yeah. khalil or hope harlingen or koi harlingen he's right they're, they're all kind of like, you know, keep in mind, I can't pay you right now. And he's like, oh, well, you know, maybe you're the kind of person who can pay me inf inf with information later. Right. But never takes a buck. 
uh, it's just there's something special about him. There's a, there's a sweetness to him. A PTA has con- compared him to like a loyal dog. He's just going to sink his teeth yeah. into something for you, and he won't let go. And you can trust him to do that. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. And yeah, and I think I think there's a real there's a kind of a basic benevolence to the movie that I like, and also that feeling of you know, it's it's a movie not terribly concerned with plot from a novel not terribly concerned with plot. I mean, you know, the the this is an author who writes very elaborate narratives that are that are uh, freighted with you know 14 different layers of of historical and cultural resonance and symbolism and and mathematical patterning and all all kinds of other things. But but the plot with a capital P is not something that really I think keeps him up at night and and this movie uh really really just doesn't give a shit I mean like I don't mean like it holds any contempt or anything it's just like I just real I was I watched the movie again and I realized like this is probably the fifth time I've seen it and I'm still not entirely sure what the, what the mystery is or what happened when I get to the end of it I'm like I think I know oh Matt we got answers we got good. answers here we got I wouldn't want to have I wouldn't want to be tested on it um, mm-hmm. but, uh, but I don't think that that's like, if you made a list of like the 20 most important things about my, about inherent vice, uh, the plot wouldn't be on a list. I don't think. I might, I might keep it at like number 19 at the <laughs> highest, but what's magical about the plot is if you, if you do want to do the thing that doc does at the beginning of our scene today, where he's sitting on the side, by the side of his bar and he's just writing names and, and drawing line. If you do want to do that and at least one of the people in this conversation has done that. I'm not going to say who, Uh, but if you do do that, it does, everything connects and everything makes a grant, but not only that, what's kind of, if you want to do that, it becomes so the mystery becomes so thematically resonant Mm -hmm. and so forms this lattice that undergirds every thematic and emotional and character driven idea it is one of the most uniquely wedded films I have ever seen in which every aspect of plot touches every aspect of character, which touches every aspect of theme. If you want to view it through that insanely dense cat's cradle. You, I am, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm wrestling with whether or not I even want to go there because first of all, <laughs> first of all it would change my, the nature of my relationship with the film. And sure. I, have, I have a really perfect relationship right now and I don't want to disturb it. And mm-hmm. secondly, you've read me plot is not my thing <laughs> i have to be forced to talk about and in fact yeah it was i didn't think it was going to win you over there it was a thing with me and alan Sepinwall when we were writing uh, the sopranos book and tv the book the survey book together um there were certain things we made a list of like why don't you we would do each of us would do a pass on the other guy's work and it was like sometimes one of us would write the first draft and the other one would write the second draft or sometimes vice versa and mm-hmm. the ones that i wrote uh, I always forgot to summarize the plot and, and <laughs> every time, every time. And it's like, and I knew like, I'm supposed to put one to two paragraphs of like, what the hell's going on. I hate it. I just hate that so much. And it got to the point where I would just, I would write my, my draft and I would literally put, Alan will verify this, Alan, do your thing. <laughs> because it's oh like I'm God. pulling my own teeth with pliers like Nick Nolte in Affliction having to do that i'm just so not interested and i don't know it's because i it's probably probably being the son of jazz musicians has something to do with it it's like to me the melody is something that you improvise on it's not the be all and end all 
Well, boy, um, oh boy, oh boy, is this the PTA movie for you then? Yeah, it really is. And and you know what? I don't doubt that you're correct. I'm sure you put you seem to put you seem like a nice young man who's thought a lot about the matter. And I'm just gonna say <laughs> I'm sure you're on to something. Go with God. Oh I feel uh, like I feel like it may be an additional layer of appreciation for me, but I just I like the fact that I don't need it. When you said that, and well, first off, you don't need it. You don't need it. this is a mood. This is a film that cruises on mood and character with plenty of momentum on both. But just now, when you addressed me like that, I felt so much like we dad was talking to Coke Kid <laughs> and telling him telling him what he does and does not need in this life. I think I think I think Weed Dad and the Cocaine Kid was a Robert Altman movie that never got. <laughs> that was a script that never got picked up. Should have. It would have been. Uh, you would have had you, a. I got to tell you, when I was in college, me and my friend Dave <laughs> used to sit around and get baked and come up with ideas for movies that we'd like to see, which are movies that I don't think anyone else would want to see. But one of them was called Dunce Cap and the Musketeer. And it was a Western, and it was a buddy Western. <laughs> and the two main characters were Dunscap and the Musketeer. And Dunscap was the guy who wore a Dunscap instead of a cowboy hat. Oh, Jesus Christ. And everyone would laugh at him when he came to town because he was wearing the Dunscap. But he was like the fastest gun in the West, and he could kill like 12 guys before they could get off a single shot. And then there's finally this scene in the movie where he finally takes off the Dunscap, and you see that his head is shaped perfectly like a like a traffic cone, like the Dunscap. <laughs> His head perfectly, um, and that's why he never takes it off. But and his buddy is the, <laughs> his buddy is the musketeer, and the musketeer is is the most accurate shot in North America. But the problem is he insists on using his great grandfather's musket, so he can only get off one shot per minute. Oh my god! Oh, yeah. oh boy! This is the most inherent vice-like digression that this show has ever taken. <laughs> this is like one of those weird. Pinchani and made up rock and roll songs that litter that litter the book. Oh my god, I'm yeah, actually yeah, crying. Would be like shooting it out with a bunch of guys in the town square. I, I'm sorry, the Dunscap would, and then he and Musketeer would take a shot and he'd kill a guy and he's like, There's a guy up in the bell tower, get him next. And he's like, keep him occupied, because he's got to load his musket. Yeah, he's gotta load the musket. He's gotta stick the little thing in. Oh yeah. my god. What a double feature that would make with uh Weed Dad and the Cocaine Kid starring Harry <laughs> Dean Stanton and Warren Oates. Dunscap and the Musketeer, yes. And then and then there could be film comment could do an article about how one one was actually a remake of the other <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i swear it wouldn't, it wouldn't be a film comment article it would be a youtube video and it would be 49 minutes long hey you make fun now wait till you see how long this episode is gonna end gonna up say, being. <laughs> fun at this point oh my god and i want to swear to everyone listening we're not high we're not high this is just happening. This conversation is just happening of its own volition. It's natural state, yeah. This is this is just coming out. I, I swear to you. We're we're just a couple of beers and bananas deep here. That's all. I swear. <laughs> Let's say well, you know what? I think that I got the cooler. I got the banana cooler. <laughs> I sure think I think up. this is a good this is a good place. This is a good place to play this scene, the longest scene. In inherent vice, the longest scene. What could that possibly really? mean? It is. This is the longest one by like uh, 15, 20 seconds. This okay. is the long. This has the most cinematic real estate in this two-hour and twenty-nine-minute movie. We got it right here. So we're gonna we're gonna watch this. And we're gonna come back. We're gonna talk about it. 
Unlimited. Oh, yeah, I'm in an evil mood myself tonight. Dr. Rudy Blatnoy, DDS. He's perpetrated his last root canal, I'm afraid. Bob Lindglass, man, what's that? Is he dead? We found him next to a trampoline in Bel Air with a fatal neck injury. So far, no witnesses, no motives, no suspects. Apart from you. Not me. Why me? You were observed in Blacknoid's company. Both of you riding in a vehicle full of drug-crazed hippies. Yeah, well, you know... The owner of that vehicle is a very well-respected, um, you know, lawyer down in Palos Verdes. And his daughter was driving. She offered me a ride. And, uh, you know, cops didn't even give her a ticket. You know, Blacknoid was her friend, not mine. Go to bed. I'm working. Why don't we go to bed? I think it's time we had one of our chats. Uh, all right. Uh. So, this Coy Harlequin matter, on the face of it, it's one more OD, one less junkie case cleared. And on the not face of it? Why, what do we have here? Why don't you pick a card, any card? These are field interrogation reports. See if you find anything that looks familiar. Card face. Doug Beaverton. Excellent choice, one of Mickey Wolfman's bodyguards. Interesting fellow here. Sheriff's people happened to run into him at the Venice home of the very dealer that sold Coy Harlingen the smack that killed him, or didn't kill him. Right, so what, what was Puck doing at Coy's dealer's place? The, the interesting thing about this overdose is that Leonard James Loosemeat, a.k.a. El Drano, was known for this 3% product. Yet the report says what killed him was pure China White number four. You mean like from the wholesaler, like whoever's bringing it in? And I seem to recall it some years ago, just before I went into Folsom, Beaverton used to work for this loan shark, Adrian Prussia. Fucking zoinks, I know Adrian Prussia. Yeah, I know my skip tracing days. He's a bad man. He's a baseball bat. Sick. And Coy's dealer, El Drano, also happened to be Prussia's steady customer. So maybe Puck was there on Adrian's behalf. What do you think? I think you and Adrian have a history you're not sharing with me. Choto, Kinichiro, Dozo, Moto Penekeku, Moto Penekeku, Moto Penekeku, Hai, Hai, Hai. Pancakes aren't quite as good as my mother's, but what I really go for here is the respect. You didn't get enough of that from her mom. <clears throat> you probably imagine that I have a lot of status up in robbery homicide. I mean, who can blame me for thinking that? In reality, however, no Cielo drive for Bigfoot. No TV movie rights or book deals for Bigfoot. 
mean, even the extra work is drying up. God help us all. The dentist on trampolines. Dr. Blatnoid had puncture wounds on his throat, consistent with bites from canines of a mid-sized wild animal. That's what the coroner told me. Swallow that. Listen, that's, that's mighty weird, Bigfoot. Okay, because Blatnoid was a partner in a tax dodge that calls itself the Golden Fang Enterprises. Now, you didn't happen to get the uh, SID to test those neck punctures for gold or nothing? I shouldn't think there'd be much trace. Gold is all but chemically inactive, as you might have learned in chemistry class if you hadn't been ditching all the time to score dope, Sportello. Every contact leaves traces. It would sure be ironic, man, is all I'm saying, if it turned out that Blatnoid was bit to death by a golden fang, or better yet, like, even better, like, two golden fangs. I don't see why any of this would be material. Because it's a fucking golden fang. It's the descendant's tax shelter, so what? Well, so man, what? it's not a tax shelter. It's something, Bigfoot, man, much more, more vast. This wouldn't be just more of your paranoid hippie bullshit, would it? Look, I have the lab check for traces of copper. Not the kind that goes stumbling all over the crime scene, uh, contaminating evidence. More like copper the metal. You see, gold teeth are never made with pure gold. Dennis like to alloy it with copper. Now, if you hadn't dis-friends this class to go steal hubcaps to plan on some innocent hippie, you might have known that. Oh, you feel like a cop almost, don't you? Good day. So that, the longest scene in the film, and we're going to get the plot, let's get this plot stuff out of the way, the stuff that, that uh, Matt cocked his eyebrows at and looked at me over his glasses when he told me that this was not necessary. This longest scene in the film, it's like a, it's like a matter-antimatter collision of Doc and Bigfoot that contains so much of the star stuff that makes up the entirety of this film especially in terms of plot. And I think it's notable, you know, I, I've shown this film to people and they're like, ha ha ha, you know, Moto Panakeku, that's funny, that's funny. But the rest of that scene is so boring and so long and so pointless. I don't understand. I don't understand why we're sitting there for six and a half minutes watching this one guy eat pancakes and Doc just kind of looking at him. But uh, I think from a plot perspective, so much coalesces and co coheres in this little restaurant. We find out that there's, we find out about the guy Puck Beaverton, who was one of Mickey Wolfman's bodyguards. LAPD found him at the house that Coy Harlingen supposedly OD'd at, a place where you can only get the cheapest 3% uh, pure heroin uh, at uh, the guy's name is Leonard James Loosemeat, AKA El Drano, which is a perfect Pinchonian name. Mm -hmm. And yet supposedly, supposedly, uh, the, the body that is found OD'd on a 100% pure, uncut, right from the distributor, from the wholesaler, heroin. Mm -hmm. And we find out that uh, Puck Beaverton is this guy that works for Adrian Prussia, a loan shark, bad man, uses a baseball bat at people, just like the baseball bat used on Doc's head at Channel View Estates at the beginning of the movie. So we start seeing this, just everything starts to connect a little bit. And we see that the the Golden Fang is just what Doc says it is. It's just this thing that's so much more vast than a tax dodge. It's this insidious uh, and infecting and connecting force that gathers up all of these, what are 
feeling all, all these random strands in Doc's world right now. The mystery of Mickey Wolfman and Shasta, the dead, the dead uh, Aryan uh, Brotherhood guard at Channel View, the, uh, the the missing neighborhoods, the the missing saxophone player. It all seems to be coalescing around this thing called the Golden Thing, which, by the way. Uh, uh, the the man he was just cruising around with the night before has now been found dead with two fang holes in his neck. And there no tell how Doc clocks the shifty way Bigfoot says Adrian Prush's name. Almost how sheepishly Bigfoot keeps trying to push Doc at Adrian Prush. Like, what do you think? What do you think? Why would he be doing this? And we and we we, we see in the film how how that why Doc pushes him at that. And I just want to say for people. And I know that you're not one of them, but there are people that say this film makes absolutely no sense. Essentially, the entire second hour of the film is all laid out right here with these two guys shooting the shit over pancakes, connecting all the dots and explaining everything. Matt, you don't have to say anything in response. This is just my angry diatribe explaining to people that this goddamn movie <laughs> You didn't sound makes. that angry. You didn't sound that angry. <laughs> Well, you have a very you soothing... Like, you sounded like if Doc Sportello hosted a podcast. <laughs> That's the biggest compliment you could have given me. I'm ready to end the episode right now on that note. I don't want anyone to forget that you said that, so we're going to cut it right here. Well, I will also say, since we're, you know, this is a kind of a safe space to go all 3 a.m. in the dorm. Um, <laughs> You're safe here. The relationship between Doc and Bigfoot is not only, as I wrote in the review, a kind of a representation of the the left the, and the right the establishment the anti-establishment uh, the the dungarees and the suits as as a uh, Les Nessman once put it on WKRP in Cincinnati, <laughs> but also the left brain and the right brain, mm. not just in general but also in the way that we watch movies and and uh, I think it's I think it's um, in a weird way, sort of a foreshadowing of that final scene where where Bigfoot, that next to last scene where Bigfoot comes in and uh, takes a hit off the joint and eats the weed, you know, where he's kind of, he's kind of almost like body of Christ, you know, <laughs> like he's sort of ingesting the lifeblood of, of Doc, like almost like he's ready to become him to some degree. Um, oh. This is the scene where it, he he opens up his newspaper, Bigfoot opens up his newspaper and he pulls out some index cards and doc says what are those and he says those are field interrogation cards and he fans them out like it's a deck of playing cards right mm -hmm. playing cards or tarot cards and he says pick a card and now this is the movie's attitude towards the narrative that you have just summarized in a very linear mathematical way this movie says this movie basically says pick a card and it gives you all of the information but it doesn't give it to you in the way that a commercial film normally would one of the things that jumped out at me immediately, even on first viewing in this movie, is unlike almost every other detective film you can make, it doesn't it doesn't introduce people by showing you their face and giving them an entrance at the moment when they become important to the plot. And in fact, that first scene in the movie, which is a fairly daring way to begin a movie, um, because it's two people talking and there's exactly. no cutaways, there's no flashbacks, there's no like, Akira Kurosawa's High and Low or Oliver Stone's JFK or Unsolved Mysteries where they say someone's name and you cut to a shot of them like rummaging through a dumpster and looking up furtively or something. They don't do that. It's just one <laughs> person talking and saying, 
and now and here's this person and here's the thing that's important about them and then there's this other thing you need to know and here's a person associated with that important thing and you have to imagine these people and you have to sort of start drawing things on the little uh board uh just like doc like in the very first scene like it's really asking you a lot and as the movie goes on they're constantly having scenes where they will introduce another important character verbally which is pretty much the opposite of what they tell you you're supposed to do in film school. They're supposed to use, they're supposed to say show, don't tell. This exactly. movie tells instead of showing whenever it goddamn well feels like it. <laughs> and it's fine. Cause that's the kind of movie that it is. And, and it's not afraid to like two thirds of the way through the movie, introduce some people who are very important or, or to finally bring them in after they've been talked about for a long time and give them like one scene. <laughs> you know, like one long scene, one good scene, but it's only one. Exactly. Or maybe a fragment of another and that's it. And like, you know, the proportion of actual screen time to versus the amount of time devoted to talking about characters in this movie is completely out of whack in a way that I find very appealing. Well, you said in your review that the film itself seems to be stoned. <laughs> and... And and it seems to have trouble keeping track of itself. You wrote images repeat, situations repeat. Sometimes the movie tells you things you already know, or as you said, refers to things it never mentioned before as if you are intimately familiar with them. Mm -hmm. And the, I think that that very odd, very but very deliberate structure is, this is a memory piece. This is either either Doc is remembering this or Sordalige is a friend of his telling us about it or Sordalige is Doc's little inner Jiminy Cricket kind of sifting through the garbage dump of his memory. That, and it is a film that is being... You know what I'm starting to, that's where I've sort of settled about her, actually. Yeah, and it's like the film is being told to us by someone high who's just trying to remember it all. It's like, it's like, it's like someone who can't tell a joke. You know, you've all, you, we all know those people who just go, okay, so these three guys walk into a bar. Okay, wait, no, is it four guys? Okay, it's four guys, but let me tell you something about the fourth guy. It's really interesting. Really quick, just for context, just for context. I forgot to mention this. I do, Shaggy, too. I'm the absolute worst at telling Shaggy dog jokes because I'll, I'll tell the Shaggy dog joke. This is, because, this, is why, this is because I'm bad at summarizing the plot. I'll say, oh, you want to hear a Shaggy dog joke? And I'll tell it, and it'll take like seven minutes. And I'll get right to the punch. I'll get right ready to give the punchline. Then I'll go like, oh, shit, I forgot to mention. The guy's wearing a Panama hat. <laughs> which is completely destroying the joke like you're the worst joke teller in the world if you forget like the one piece of information that's necessary to set up the punchline but i do that all the time all the time i shouldn't be allowed to tell jokes <laughs> well it works here it somehow it works yeah. here and the movie kind of tunes you into that wavelength where if, if you're willing to give yourself to it you eventually start to it's like when you are talking to a good friend of yours who's high and you're not and you know them well enough that eventually you get what they're trying to say, even if they can't it. say yeah. it clearly. Yeah. And it's like with this film, even if you don't get the plot, even if you can't put the plot together, you get what it means. You get the mm -hmm. feel of it. And I think that that's what makes this film so special is it's not being spoon fed to you. It's being kind of nudged at you. It's like a friend that's kind of nudging you like, hey, do you see this? Do you see this? Do you see this? Well, you know, it's also interesting in this scene that, you know, there's a part of it where Bigfoot goes off on this long expository tangent. It's basically an information dump. And Doc is staring at him very intently. With his I know the look. Almost, I know the look. Almost immobile and kind of tilted back. 
And then he says, what do you think? And Doc says, you know, Doc is supposed to answer about the plotty stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And he says, I think you and Adrian have a history. That you're not telling me about. And that's what he got out of it. Like, he's oh. not paying attention to the plot because there's a deeper story going on here. Exactly. And like a brother, again, almost yes. like a brother, he can see through the bullshit go, weird how you looked at me when you said Adrian yes. Prussia, that sheepish and little... Again, it's like a therapist. It's like what a therapist... Like, or, or th- yeah, it, it, a therapist has the ability to listen to a story about an ordinary day that was full of ordinary frustrations and and then when the pause arrives say when's the last time you spoke to your mother (laughs) exactly and and i think i think that part of that that wavelength and there is to use a very inherent vice term wavelength there is something vibrating between these two men there's something shared between these two men because we saw it earlier in the film when when doc is uh, slinking around the Wolfman house and in the and in the closet looking at all the pornographic ties customized by a guy in North Hollywood, there's a moment where he just stops, shivers, and whispers, Bigfoot. And then the next thing we see, Bigfoot's outside waiting for him. Doc sensed it. And I think, and I've said this before in the show, I think that their scenes together, Doc and Bigfoot, each of them lays out so much of what bonds these two men because they they are bonded by something and it's that i think they are both men for whom their time and their generation and their era has just passed them by yes it's passed them by and i think but i also think there's another thing like more basic than that which is that bigfoot secretly wants to be a hippie and doc secretly wants to be a cop Doc is Doc is the closest you can be to being a cop without having the responsibilities of a cop and also the the ability to commit wanton unnecessary violence which which you know bigfoot pretty much acknowledges like he wants to be a guy he wants to be the kind of cop that people talk about you know like when they talk when people sentimentalize police mm-hmm. it, which is the guy who helps people who are in trouble and helps solve problems and finds people who are missing and stands up to powerful people on behalf of people who don't have any power that's not really what the police do in this country and Bigfoot represents what they actually do. And it's significant that uh, the thing that means the most to Bigfoot is not his actual role as a policeman in real life, but the policeman that he plays on television, which is the idealized version of cop. And when that's taken away from him, he can't even take refuge in his illusions anymore. Like that part where he talks about how, you know, his roles are drying up. He can't even get work as an extra anymore. Like his opportunity to pretend to be a good cop, an idealized cop, is no longer an option. Anymore. No CLO drive for Bigfoot. That's one thing starts to really unravel is he's, his, his, his stage, his fiction has been taken away from him. And, and, and that, I think it's very sad also that, you know, that when Doc finally, you know, he kills that Nazi with the toilet lid and shoots Adrian. Um, a lot of movies where, you know, the detective hero finally kills somebody, the movie kind of is excited for them on their behalf. And I don't think this movie is excited for him. And in fact, it's interesting, as I was watching this movie with two of my teenagers who had never seen it before, when during that scene, they were saying, oh, no, oh, no. You don't want to see Doc have to do something like that. You don't that. want to see Doc have to And I think, like, that tells me that the movie is has a good heart. That two people <laughs> I think you're right. Two people who've never seen this movie know that you're not supposed to cheer when he when he hits a Nazi. 
to he save was, his own life. It's not just because he's a Nazi. It's, it's to literally life. save he's not, his He's life. not just being like, it's not like he's anything in revenge or anything. Like, he's completely trying to get out of there before the guy very likely tortures and kills him. And like, hitting the guy in the face with with the toilet lid and, and beating him when he starts beating him, like one of my kids was like, oh no, oh no. And then when they, when he shoots the cop, it's like, they both are like, oh no. And it so, reminded me, and here, and here we go, right? Let's bring it around to Jonathan Demme. There's a famous story about when Silence of the Lambs had its first screening, its first like focus group screening. And the scene in the basement with Jane Gum when, when Clarice shoots him, the audience cheered when she shot him. And, De and Jonathan Demme was talking to, you know, the studio people about it and they're reading the cards and he's like, well, all right, I'm going to change this. I'm going to change that. I could probably get that. And he's like, and I got to do something about the ending. Like, what are you talking about? That was a great ending. He's like, they cheered. It's like, of course they cheered. She's an FBI agent and, and she shot the, the bad guy. And he's like, he's not a bad guy. He's a very like disturbed, sad individual. And like, he was determined to like re-edit that to get it to the point where people didn't cheer. And here's the funny thing. The first time I saw that movie, was a uh, you know the original theatrical run back in 1991 it was a packed house it was a friday night everybody was really into it but when they shot when she shot jane gum nobody cheered wow nobody cheered and they were probably it was the biggest seat i think it was at the glen lakes theater which isn't there anymore but it was like a 700 seat theater or something nobody cheered and that tells me that jonathan demi pulled it off like whatever it was that he and the he and the editor did they pulled it off and like this movie this is the kind of movie where the hero hits a nazi in the face and and the audience doesn't cheer it's, it's a funny. different kind of movie it's a different kind of movie and like you know and again and here comes our old pal jesus <laughs> more hot jesus action more hot jesus the action if jesus hit a nazi in the face with a toilet tank lid would you cheer Gosh. Maybe in this day and age you would, but well, like yeah, but... if you really appreciated Jesus, you'd feel bad for cheering. Exactly. <laughs> you know, you would know that he would he would feel like he failed. And it's if it's got it... to the point where you had to hit a Nazi in the face with a toilet tank lid. He'd be like, oh. I I didn't do I didn't I wasn't operating at maximum Jesusness today. <laughs> I got I got to go over notes. <laughs> go and over that, my notes. I got to do that's part of. That's part of the sweetness of, of Doc is for me, like my heart soars in the moment when he drops Coy Harlingen off at his house. So yes. he can, when the dad gets to be with his wife and daughter again, he like the whole world's disintegrating around them. And this one family gets to come together. That for me is when I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm jumping in my seat. I'm cheering. I'm clapping. Obviously, I have a, a very <laughs> obsessive relationship with this film, but it gets it out of me. I get so excited. But you're right that the, that in this scene. To, to connect it to another Demi film uh, that, or the, the, the scene where Adrian goes down to compare it to another Demi film. It's like that kind of sickening feeling that you have in, um, in something wild when it does that final gear shift into just yeah. all out thriller. And you're like, Oh no. I mean, I, I, I don't want Ray. To, I don't want Ray to get killed. And mm -hmm. I don't, I, I, I don't want Charlie to have to kill him. I don't want to. I don't want to see Lulu thrown into the bathtubs crying. I don't want. I don't want any of this to happen to any of these characters. Even no, the no, even the so-called the, the bad guy. Like I under, I feel bad for him too. Like I hate that this is happening. I always think about you know there was that run in the eighties and nineties where they had all these so-called from hell thrillers like you know. Uh, first Night Stand from Hell, Babysitter from Hell, Nanny from Hell, you know, whatever, Lawyer from Hell. There were, there were all of these, you know, uh, First Crush from Hell, whatever. 
where like someone comes in and they're basically menacing the the nuclear family with its bourgeois values and in the end they have to be killed that's what all of these movies are ultimately about and the only one that i can think of that doesn't do that is basic instinct where it sort of ends on an ambiguous a weirdly ambiguous kind of art movie note you know like what the fuck it does it, it does. does. Very, I still it's wrestle. Characteristic of those kinds of movies, and I remember people being frustrated by it, you know, at the time. But of course, it was a top-grossing film of the year, so they must not have been that unhappy. But, uh, <laughs> but those movies, um, I always thought there was a more interesting movie waiting beyond the credits, which is they always end with, you know, there's a confrontation, and usually it's in a dark house. Sometimes there's rain, and it ends with, you know, the 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 characters who represent um, quote-unquote normal middle-class values uh, beating the bad guy to death or shooting them or impaling them with something or, you know, whatever. And then it ends with them sitting on the front stoop of the house and then the police pull up and the camera cranes back and the credits start to roll. And I always think, like, I want to see what happens after that. I want to see them explain, you know, the end of Fatal Attraction. <laughs> well, you see, uh, you see officer, I, thought I, I thought I drowned my husband's mistress in the bathtub, but it turns out she was still alive. And when she popped up, I shot her. <laughs> <laughs> well, look what she did to the bunny. I mean, come on. I, mean, I know. Officer, still, like, come on. Those characters, if they were real, they would be they would be defined by that for the rest of their life. Yeah. For the rest of their life, they would be defined by what happened that night in that house when they killed the bad guy. And I think Inherent Vice in its own like very gentle sort of, you know, hot perfumed way, I think is aware of that. Well, and to, to take that further, even though we are so far away from our scene, but who cares? It's my, it's my show. I say we can do it. This is the movie that shows you what happens after that because the cops are there in the form of Bigfoot Bjornsson in that great tracking shot where everything is out of focus, but doc and then yes. slowly, slowly Bigfoot begins to cohere in his vision. And I think the reason it's formed that way is for you to, to basically feel the exact same way as doc feels in that moment, which is Bigfoot. What the fuck is this? What did you do? What did yes. you make me do? Bigfoot what? makes it, makes it all go away. Yeah, and Bigfoot, and the way that Bigfoot's just like, oh, I've seen you on the dock. I, or I, dock, I've seen you. I've seen you on the range. I knew you could handle yourself, Doc. You take care of him, okay? And and you realize right. what a coward Bigfoot is in that he had to outsource. And I, I've said this before on the show how how cowardly he is in that he had to outsource his vengeance for his fallen partner, the guy that he's filleting bananas over. <laughs> he had to outsource that vengeance because he he couldn't do it himself. He couldn't stand up against the blue lion himself. He couldn't stand up against the golden fang itself. And so he manipulates and puts Doc in a, on a collision course with all of these things that have ruined his life, but he is unable or unwilling to confront himself. Mm -hmm. And this is the movie that gives you this gives you the after the the after show. And it is, it is, it's it's Bigfoot just wiping it all away. Don't worry about it. And doing one more semi-good deed of putting enough heroin in Doc's trunk to give him the leverage he needs to get Coy Harlingen out, mm -hmm. which is, again, a good deed, but it's a cowardly deed because he doesn't do it himself. He's like, I'm going to let, I'll let Doc take care of it. And hopefully he doesn't get murdered. He doesn't get murdered right. for doing this. Right. And, and that's what, that's what pri private detective movies are often about. 
um, the good ones anyway, they're about how real justice is impossible. And, and, and the best you can hope for is to sort of um, turn the system to your advantage temporarily in a way that benefits uh, the people you love and maybe you by proxy, but that's not the main goal. Like the main goal is always like returning the kidnapped child to their family or saving the person who's been held in, you know, against their will or, you know, uh, finding the piece of evidence that'll exonerate the wrongfully accused person, like things of that nature. That's what the private detective does. And um, the idea of the gangster and the private detective as being kind of different routes to the same destination is something that I find endlessly fascinating because they both operate adjacent to the law, but not in, not within it. You know, like the, 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 the gangsters are sort of underneath the law and the private detective is kind of outside of it or slightly above it looking down yeah. with a raised eyebrow and they both have no choice but to interact with the law at certain points because this is the world that we live in but you know the godfather begins with somebody coming to the godfather who cannot get justice through the police and saying godfather will you give me justice and uh that's what the detective does this movie begins with somebody like some most detective stories begin with a person, usually a woman, coming to the detective and saying, hey, something bad has happened and I can't do anything about it. Can you help me? Okay. And sometimes it's a setup, but other times it's not. And sometimes even when it's a setup, there's like a real distress signal there. Well, I was going to say, in true inherent vice fashion, it feels like both a setup and a genuine cry for help at the beginning. Yes. Of the film. It's both, or maybe it's neither. And that's, again, the magic of this film is the the film itself seems to be not quite sure what exactly happened there and why it happened. And in the end, it kind of just meets it with a, oh, okay, Shasta's back. All right, fair enough. Yeah. Cool, cool. Now, to, to swing back, to swing back to Bigfoot, because we got to keep this slightly Bigfoot-centric since this is his, this is his episode. This is his, his big piece de resistance. I thought you were going to say foot. <laughs> <laughs> this is his big foot, but... One thing I want to talk about with Bigfoot is something that I think the film does such a good job of slyly jacketing and smuggling in, I think, what it wants to say and what it wants to do. And it leaves it there if you want to dig in. And if you don't want to dig in, then fine, have a good laugh. And I think something to talk about is Bigfoot's, as pretentious as this is going to sound, Bigfoot's relationship to consumption and to, mm -hmm. to eating things. Throughout the film, we see him eating things and we laugh at it, whether he, he is lasciviously deep-throating a frozen chocolate-covered banana, which are not very good. I do not think they taste good at all. I've tried them for the show. I do not like them. Uh, it's, or whether he's eating these pancakes that seem to like infuse him with a feeling of respect that he is not getting on the force with robbery homicide because... They're colluding with the golden vein to kill his goddamn partner. And, oh, and also because also because of his mother, as Doc is because family. of his mother and his very domineering. Uh, you you get the feeling replacement for his mother uh, uh, wife, Chastity Bjornson, who yes. who is screaming over his shoulder about uh, uh, therapy bills that would quote choke a fucking horse, which is so yes. fine. And then at the end, you see him consuming all of Doc's weed as if he could almost consume Doc's essence and be the her the hero of the story that he knows Doc is and that he is not. And what I yeah. think is very interesting about this character trait is that 
it gets seen for laughs. And it is funny, but it's also mighty weird, as Doc would say. And there's something about... Latinoid was a partner in a tax dodge. That's right. <laughs> there's something to me that's so, again, to go with that Demi thing, where you can look at this and go, yeah, this is just weird and funny. But beneath this funny is this just vast sadness of 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 longing and wanting that that there is this deep chasmic hole in Bigfoot that he keeps trying to fill. Mm-hmm. That's that that could be a, a mildly sexual pun if you want it to be. Uh, with, with I mean, you know, puns aren't even necessary. <laughs> Half the scenes he's in, he's, he's got a banana in his mouth. You know? <laughs> I mean, as Freud would say, sometimes a banana is just is just a banana, but not in this movie. Not not in this movie. The, the bananas are never bananas in this movie. But I just I find that to be so, to me, indicative of what this film is and how this film operates. Which is, you can watch this film fifty goddamn times if you want to do it. Just go, boy, that Bigfoot. He sure is funny when he eats, isn't he? That's funny. He's a funny guy. That's a good laugh moment. There's a lot of weird, serious enough stuff in this movie. There's a dark sex scene. I wasn't happy when Adrian got killed. That was really dark and weird. But boy, that Bigfoot, he makes me laugh. But if you want to, if you want to engage and interact a little deeper, you have this, again, deeply empathetic portrait of this massively, wantonly sad human being that so badly wants to be someone else, anyone else, whether it's his his long dead partner, Vincent Delicato, whether it's uh, the, the the boy that his mother would respect uh, and feed pancakes, or whether it's Doc himself at the end, there's this constant need to consume things to yeah. try to become them. And you see that at the beginning of the movie, he's dressed like a hippie. He's trying mm-hmm. so hard to wear the clothes of anyone other than Bigfoot Bjornsson. And I just, there is such a, a sadness to, the, to this character and a nuance to the performance of James or uh, to, to Josh Brolin, excuse me, that I don't think gets enough attention. This is one of Brolin's finest, finest hours as a performer. There is a level of nuance happening here that you miss because it's so goofy and it's so funny. But he is doing career best work here in that very hyper masculine, taciturn, Jimmy Con and Thief style, but so knowing and self-aware and and deconstructing that i i i could i could watch a whole bigfoot movie very very happily <laughs> well you don't have to because most cop movies are bigfoot <laughs> but they're they're not they're unknowingly so or they're yes, not inter- they're, they're not uh, self-interrogating whereas, well, also, you know as you're saying all this I, I suddenly just realized oh you know another sort of recurring thing in the movie that strengthens what we're talking about is most of the times when we see bigfoot he's wearing a suit Oh, yeah, and there and every scene in which uh, uh, Doc is supposed to dress up, he doesn't. He stops just short of actually dressing up, but there's always right. some kind of ridiculous thing about him that makes him not formal. You know, whether it's this wig, like why is he wearing a wig that looks like his own, hair? <laughs> or like you know the scene where he goes to visit. Uh, Martin Donovan and Crocker yeah. Fenway at the end. He's like, you got to wear a suit, it's a dress code. You got to wear a suit, and he, he's a wearing a turtleneck like, and like a bolo tie. And a bolo tie, like I guess or, that's a suit if you're Doc, you know. But it's like, <laughs> again, it's like he can't be a cop. Yeah, he can't, he can't. Be formal. He can't be the establishment. He's incapable of it. There's always got to be some kind of a a signal that he's not one of them. And uh, that's that's the difference, I think, between these two men, which is. Or Brad, actually, you know what? I, I misspoke. That's the that's kind of the similarity between these two men. And I think 
it's much more of a tragedy for Bigfoot than it is Doc. They can't be anything other than what they are. Yes, and also he's Doc is afraid of becoming Bigfoot, I believe. I don't think that's a major preoccupation, but it's, I think it's something he thinks about. And I think the scene where he finally does commit violence, I think, proves my point. Um, the, but never, there's but Doc, a darkness inherent there. No pun yes, the dark, but Doc, Doc's strategy is to avoid becoming Bigfoot. Yeah. To avoid becoming the establishment, to avoid becoming like that which oppresses others and, and that he holds in contempt. Whereas Bigfoot, there is an impulse in Bigfoot to become something other than Bigfoot, but he doesn't have the strength or the focus to actually achieve it. You are absolutely right. And that's why, that's why you're Matt. That's, that's perfect. That's such a perfect encapsulation. And it so jives with, I don't know if you've actually read the novel, Inherent Vice. Yes, uh, but it was, it was when it came out and I mm. never went back to it, even when I watched the movie. That's, so that's, so a, that's a whole I'm not, I'm not in a position to do a comparison. <laughs> no, no, I, no, no, no. I do remember thinking that it captured the S, it captured the feeling of reading the book, which is mm. that kind of, here I am stoned sitting on a beach reading this book. <laughs> well, that's, the reason I mention that is there is a, there is a wonderful line in the book, in the, the book version of this scene, it begins with Doc musing, uh, this is a direct quote, time was when Doc used to actually worry about turning into Bigfoot Bjornsson, ending up just one more diligent cop going only where the leads pointed him, opaque to the light which seemed to be finding everybody else walking around in this regional dream of enlightenment denied the widescreen revelations bigfoot himself called epiphanies epiphanies <laughs> doomed instead to be accosted by freak after freak drawling let me tell you about my trip man never to be up early enough for what might one day turn out to be a false dawn which might have accounted for why up until last night Doc had always been willing to cut Bigfoot a certain amount of slack. Not that he would necessarily want that to get around. Mm -hmm. no, and that to me, there's in translating the film to the, or the, excuse me, the book to the film, and this is something else I've said on the show so often is I think there's a coldness, a bit of a coldness in this relationship uh, in the book. And I think that there's, there's a lot more of Pynchon's anger at mm -hmm. what happened to this decade and what happened to the people in it. Yeah, and I think that the the film is a far warmer, uh, a far more, more interested in just about how you miss people, about how you miss people as, as opposed to an era. Yeah. But I think that the book here, this there's this one little moment of true sweetness in the book, of of, of brotherhood in the book, where where even Pynchon realizes or recognizes and makes clear they're so much closer to one another than either would admit, and that there is an there is an empathy for one another. It's an empathy that I don't find as riddled throughout the book as, as is in the film, but in this moment, so yeah, he does care for him, and there's a, Doc feels sorry for Bigfoot, even if in a scene, in, the, in, in today's scene, there's that great moment where he has to tuck his head low and hide his laughter at how pathetic Bigfoot is, and he's like, no Cielo Drive for Bigfoot, no mm -hmm. TV movie rights for Bigfoot. He can't help but feel sorry for the guy and kind of care about the guy. And, and like he says at the end of the movie, he just wants to give him a keeper if possible. And there's, there's such a sweetness to that, that as you said, the way Brolin plays Bigfoot, well, that's every other cop movie. Every other cop movie wouldn't have those moments of just pure, like, man, I feel for this guy. I just want him to be happy. Is there something I can do for him? I, I, when I was watching this movie, it, 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 the, for the first time, it shook loose a memory, which was in spring of 1989. 
uh, I was in college and I went on a spring break trip with my two friends, Steve and Barry, from SMU in Dallas, where we were students out to the coast. And we went to LA and San Francisco, uh, Berkeley, and, you know, points in between. We went through Colorado. I don't remember all of it, but it was, we covered a lot of ground. And when we were in San Francisco, it was my first time in San Francisco. And it was, you know, 20 years after, 22 years after the summer of love. And my friend Barry was the kind of guy, he was almost like a Doc Sportello type. He was a, you know, he was a stoner, uh, uh, very intelligent, very, very uh, empathetic and, um, and kind of goofy. And he went up to this guy, he was talking to everyone. He was one of those kind of guys where like, if you didn't know where Barry was, it was he'd started talking to somebody and he had to go find <laughs> him. And I'll never forget this. We're standing in, it was in Haight-Ashbury and there was this hippie guitar player standing on a corner playing guitar with his guitar case open. And he was in his uh, mid forties and he had very long hair, but it was turning, starting to turn gray. And he looked, you know, he looked his age and um, we lost Barry and we didn't know where he was. And we found him talking to the guitar player on the corner and they were having a very deep, very earnest conversation. And then we, and we listened to part of it. And then Barry said, so when he's like, how long have you been here? And he's like, came out here during this, uh, during the summer of love, 1967. He's like, and you, you ever lived anywhere else? He goes, no, man, I've been in this neighborhood ever since. And he said, wow, wow, that's really something. It's like, I guess a lot has changed, huh? And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he, there's a long pause and then he looked around. And he says, and you know, recently I've been looking around and I'm feeling like maybe it's just not happening here anymore. And I was like, wow, 22 years later, the guy's having his epiphany. He's like, yeah, I kind of feel, I look around, I feel like it's just not happening anymore. And Barry's like, the summer of love? He's like, yeah, man. <laughs> it's like, it's it, 1989, dude. It took him to the very end of the Reagan, it, the Reagan 80s to... <laughs> right, I mean, you know, Bush had been sworn in. That's right, it's 89. And he's like, he's looking around going like, I don't know, man, I don't, I don't feel like it's happening here anymore. <laughs> maybe the milk has gone sour. <laughs> 22 years later, maybe I should check. Yeah. Wow. I can't think of a better way to close this out than that story. That is, and hey, you made it through a semi, like a semi shaggy joke just now. Just, I almost did. And I didn't forget to tell you that the guy was 45, you know. So. Hey, look, hey, we're growing as people. We're growing as people through this. Sem- and, 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 I, and, I, and I must say, I, I appreciate so many of the gems that you've thrown at me like that. And I hope you're prepared for the fact that you are now my weed dad. And whenever Coke Kid gets in trouble, and whenever I get in a jam, I need a little bit of advice. I'm I'm coming to weed that. So I hope you are prepared. I hope you keep late hours because um, if I'm I up do. late, I, I know I know who I'm going to pester now, who I'm going to go to to look over their glasses and be like, Coke Kid, <laughs> really? You're worried about a Christopher Nolan movie? Come on, grow up. You know what? I'll be I'll be your weed dad with the understanding that my advice may not make any fucking sense at all. <laughs> Hey, you know what? You've been relatively cogent tonight. I'm going to give you that. You made it through your shaggy joke. Uh, we talked about, uh, oh God, what was the name of your movie again? Uh, come on. What was it? I've already forgotten. Your, high, your, your, your college movie. What was the... the, the... Oh, the, uh, the, the, what, the, the, what, the Haight-Ashbury story? No, the, 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 um, the guy, the, the musket. Um, 
Oh, Dunn's Cap and the Musketeer. Dunn's yeah. Cap and the Musketeer. We made it through. The, well, we almost made it through. The, we fell apart just now. But hey, it, as long as like long the as Sergio, the, the Sergio Leone, the Sergio Leone film that no one wants. <laughs> hey, I'd take it. I'd take it. We dad. I'd take it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, this is getting weird quick. So before that, before we start getting the break open any more bananas, we're gonna close this out. Before I do, I'll ask you what I ask everyone. Please tell people where they can find your work. Well, you can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller Sites, uh, my byline, and you can read me at Vulture on television, and you can read me at RogerEbert.com on movies, and uh, you can uh, find my books at uh, MZSWorldStore.com. I have my own bookstore where I sell my books, and also books by uh, people I know who uh, I've contributed to their books. So one-stop shopping and uh everything is i pack every i pack every package myself so you get to you'll get to see my uh my packing skills uh, <laughs> you're gonna see some uh some very conspicuous uh chocolate and banana th- thumbprints on some of the pages uh there's gonna be banana smell don't, yeah, don't there, there might be some seeds and stems in the spine <laughs> of a couple of those books never mind that never mind that just enjoy the content they're really really good all right exactly. On that note, Matt, thank you so much for coming on and taking this journey with me with our friend Bigfoot. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for listening. And please join me next time where myself and a very special guest are going to take a ride with Sorlige. Boy, oh boy, oh boy, does Matt ever have a handle on inherent vice. Even if, or maybe because, plots aren't exactly his thing. In fact, we're going to leave it to the words of the man, the myth, the weed dad himself to close us out this week, as he wrote in his Inherent Vice review. Everything ties together, and yet it doesn't all tie together. Or maybe Vice is one of those films where it kind of doesn't matter whether it ties together. And if so, to what degree? And it's fine. It's intentional. It's part of it, maybe. The film itself seems to be stoned and to have trouble keeping track of itself. Images repeat. Situations repeat. Sometimes the movie tells you things you already know, or refers to things it never mentioned before as if you're intimately familiar with them. It's all over the place. It sure is. But what about this little passage Matt wrote about old Sordelige? The movie is narrated in third person by Doc's associate Sordelige, Joanna Newsom, who I am about 90% certain is not a figment of anyone's imagination. Well... Is she or isn't she? That's going to be the topic du jour when we come back. We'll see what we can see next time on Increment Vice.